Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, look at everyone. Very hip in their over-ear headphones. I, I think I feel like the fashion used to be you had to have those little little buds and look like everyone was walking around with Q-tips in their ears. But I think the the norm core over the head earphones has come back. And I, for one, am I for one am pleased. I mean, I was never cool, so it, it's always nice when when fashion very briefly goes through its hip uncool phases because I, who am unhiply uncool, can sort of tag along for a little bit. This is like the whole story of my late 30s. It's phenomenal. <laughs> I saw a story recently about how uh, the cool kids these days are no longer into Bluetooth headphones like AirPods, but have returned to wired headphones, which as somebody who never used Bluetooth headphones was news to me. And so I felt briefly uncool and then cool again, since all the cool kids are just using their plain old wired earbuds. I have to say, I'm a fan of the Bluetooth, so I can be a bit more mobile, but the TikTokers are all doing wired headphones, so they probably know better than I do. Yeah, the problem with Bluetooth, though, is if you have your, your headphones paired to a bunch of devices, like the moment you leave or enter the house, everything just goes haywire. So I don't have that, that seamless transition if I want to listen to my pod. You also now have the problem where I think at least I got some new AirPods and they now read your text messages to you. Oh, which no. Is, Nothing more infuriating the, than when somebody sends a two paragraph long text and then all your friends <laughs> like it over the next hour because it's just a robot voice reading the same text <laughs> over and over and over to you to the point that I took my headphones off and set them on the counter next to me for like two hours last night until people stopped reacting to the picture of my friend's kid that everyone was loving and hearting. There's a, a website or a Twitter account or something that's called a shitty future. And that's what this reminds me of. Yeah, this is a good example of a premium mediocre headphones mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. very good tell you yes. 87 times that someone else has liked some other picture <laughs> of someone else's child. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the secret of the ooze, by which I mean the secret of the U.S., by which I mean the United States, by which I mean state secrets. Uh, because we are okay. here today. I thought that was okay. You know, we got there eventually. Scott Anderson, everybody. These are getting harder to do. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but we're slowly getting there. We're slowly getting there. Uh, I am excited to be here with you with my co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And our very special guest, Rohini Karup uh, from Lawfare's Associate Editor. Hello, Rohini. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. We were able to pull you away, uh, I understand, from uh, law school applications. Is that like all the hip kids are doing these days in lawfare land, it seems? That is. That is what all the hip kids are doing. Law professors and uh, law school admissions committees, I know you're listening to this podcast. You should totally admit Rohini to your excellent law school. And you should admit all of the wonderful lawfare people who are applying to law school. They are top rate. We have a mass head for a reason, is what we're saying. So exactly. people should get on there yes. and check it out. But Rohini, what about Alan and mine's general demeanor, appearance, and life experience would ever want you to follow in our footsteps? <laughs> Everything. I'll just note, I did not apply to law school. I know. Quinta, Quinta was baited away by, uh, <laughs> you know, success, law, law and media. Different yeah, piece, the, different the, the riches and success of journalism. But, yes. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Qu- Quinta decided that law was a psychologically unhealthy profession, mm-hmm, so she became mm-hmm. a journalist. But um, <laughs> well, because of these past choices, we are here with you today to talk through <laughs> some of the leading news in uh, the national security world over the last week. Today, on the Dirty Little Secrets edition, we will be talking about topic one. I'll keep you, my dirty little secret. A throwback for 90s slash early 2000s <laughs> rock, rock fans, All-American Rejects, anyone? Uh, the Supreme Court has heard oral argument in not one but two cases relating to the sometimes, if not often, controversial state secrets doctrine. 
Will the doctrine survive Supreme Court scrutiny in its current form? Topic number two, coming home to roost. Last week, a Guantanamo Bay detainee's unprecedented testimony regarding his torture at American hands led members of a military jury to recommend he receive clemency. Will this be a turning point for the military commissions? And topic three, bark v. bite. A judge recently criticized the Department of Justice for describing the January 6th insurrection as an unprecedented criminal act while only bringing minor charges against many of the defendants involved in it. What do we know of the department's prosecutorial strategy thus far, and does it make any sense? For our first topic, let me hand it over to you, Alan. Yeah, so as Scott mentioned, this term we have two state secrets cases in the Supreme Court, which is two more than we usually do. Uh, United States uh, versus Zubeda was argued uh, back in October, and earlier this week, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in FBI v. Fazaga. I'm sure we'll talk about both, but I think Fazaga is the case that more squarely addresses the substantive issues around the state secrets doctrine. It's a little more procedurally straightforward. Rohini, I know that you have been following these cases very, very closely, and you are our resident state secrets expert. What What is going on in, in Fazaga, and what do the justices seem inclined to do with respect to the state secrets doctrine? Yeah. So FBI versus Fazaga is a case that involves FBI surveillance of mosques after 9-11. So the FBI sent a paid informant to surveil mosques in Southern California in 2006 and 2007. The informant posed as a convert and gathered information on people, recorded conversations, and so on. And so three members of the Muslim community in Southern California sued the FBI, and they claimed that they were the targets of this undercover surveillance operation based on their religion. And so they, the claims alleged illegal searches under the Fourth Amendment and unlawful discrimination in violation of the Constitution and federal law. And so in response to the, the, several of the claims in the suit, the FBI invoked the state secrets privilege. And so the issue here is whether the state secrets privilege bars litigation and discovery. So the plaintiffs responded that there's a mechanism to resolve the issue, uh, which is a provision in FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It's called Section 1806F. And they say that that provision displaces the state secrets privilege. Uh, So the question that was before the Supreme Court is whether the case can be dismissed under the state secrets privilege or whether, as the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled, the FISA provision displaces the state secrets privilege and allows the case to move forward, but would permit the trial judge to decide on the merits of the case. So so I want to ask you sort of what you think that the court's going to decide on this, but I think it's first worth just making sure we're on the same page about the, the state secrets privilege, which is a very powerful ability that the government has in litigation to say, look, this litigation against the government or against a third party by someone is otherwise valid. There are perfectly legitimate claims. But in order to resolve the issue, evidence would have to be disclosed that would harm national security. And so by invoking the state secrets privilege, the executive branch can basically tell the courts, please dismiss this case. And in the vast majority of cases, that's exactly what the what the courts do. Sometimes they ask the government for a little bit more information to justify the invocation of the state secrets privilege. But generally, the courts have been incredibly deferential to the executive branch. And so what this case tees up nicely is, you know, on the one hand, the incredible discretion that the government has in invoking the state secrets privilege and concerns about whether it's using that discretion responsibly. But on the other hand, the fact that the state secrets privilege is a very well-established, very well-recognized, and very well-respected power that the executive branch has. And so, you know, should this provision of FISA be read as Congress implicitly abrogating it? So just to get make sure we're on the same page there with respect to the state secrets privilege, what do you think the, the, the justices are going to do based on what you heard in oral argument? Yeah, so the justices seemed a bit divided about whether they want to deal with the, the FISA question um, and whether that overrides, the provision overrides the state secrets privilege. So there are actually two questions here, right? So the first is, does this provision in FISA 1806F apply? And the second is, if it does apply, does it override the state secrets privilege? And the justices seem to disagree on the first point. So I'm not sure we'll actually get a ruling on the second. By saying that it doesn't apply, by saying that that FISA provision doesn't apply to this case, uh, the case would go back to the lower court, which would then evaluate 
the state secrets aspect without the FISA provision. So it seemed like the justices wanted to issue a narrower ruling. So I have to say, we're we're also going to talk about the Abu Zubaydah case, which also touches on state secrets. But I think, Alan, as, as you kind of touched on, this is not something that we're used to seeing in front of the Supreme Court. Both of you should correct me if I'm wrong. I think this may be the these may be the only two state secrets cases that the court has has taken. And so I ended up just feeling kind of puzzled about like, why now? Just did the vibes change? Is there something in the water? All the justices or four of the justices woke up and said, I really feel like weighing in on state secrets. Like it it seems very odd. And I also found the timing interesting because, I mean, obviously, of course, these conversations are happening right around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I would argue that the fact that this litigation is now before the Supreme Court, 20 years later, almost 20 years after some of these events that are at issue happened is sort of a pretty good reminder that we have not moved on legally or politically or culturally from everything that happened and everything that the U.S. government did after that point. So just why now? (laughs) Like what is happening? Yeah. So Rohini, I'd be curious for your thoughts on that. But Quinta, to your question of whether or not the Supreme Court has ever done a state secrets case. It it has in the past, right? So, you know, my understanding is that um, the state secrets doctrine was first recognized in this case called United States versus Reynolds back in 1953. Um, And the Supreme Court may have had other state secrets cases squarely since then. At the very least, I think they've talked about it every once in a while. But you are right, right? Like fundamentally, you are correct that, you know, this is not something, yeah, yeah, you're good. Um, This is not like, you know, the Fourth Amendment in which there are a dozen cases every single year, right? This is something that happens quite infrequently. And to have two in one year strikes me as particularly notable, right? I mean, the thing you have to remember about the Supreme Court is that it chooses its own docket, right? Almost every single case that ends up in front of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court does because it wants to. And it usually does so for one of two reasons, right? One is the case is so monumentally important, that you need the Supreme Court to get involved, right? So, you know, when the Affordable Care Act was going through litigation, right, it was going to go to the Supreme Court because it was like the most important law that had been passed in a decade. Other cases that go before the Supreme Court usually go because there's some circuit split, because there's some law that is unclear needs to be clarified. Now, all state secrets cases are important kind of by definition. Otherwise, the government wouldn't be invoking the state secrets doctrine. But these two cases... Fazaga and Zubeda strike me as in the second category, where the issue is about the Supreme Court wanting to clarify an area of the law that has been kind of festering for a long time. But what I find confusing, and Rohini, I really like your thoughts in particular, is it doesn't sound like the Supreme Court wants to clarify the state secrets doctrine. Like it doesn't want to actually issue a ruling in either this case or Zubeda saying, you know, it's finally time for us to clear up what the state secrets doctrine means. It wants to do all this like nibbling around the edges and super narrow rulings. And so I don't fully understand, like if you're going to do two state secrets cases in one term at the same time, are you then you're going to like, then going to like, I don't know. I'm trying to make a sports ball metaphor and I'm failing. What is the thing in baseball where you, instead of hitting the ball, you like take the bat, you do it horizontally. Bunting. Yeah, bunting. It's called a bunt. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's like the, it's like the cake. That helps. It's, it's, yeah, except, except, <laughs> it's except, spelled except, differently. Except the cake is an actual freaking cake, which you can eat, Whether whereas this is just more sports ball. Well, so, so. so before we go further, would it be useful to just walk through Zabida? Because I do think that, that that might be some useful context. So Rahini, again, I defer to you here, but the issues are sort of, well, they're not sort of, they are different than the issues that are at stake in Fazaga, but also, you know, raise the state secrets question in a sort of in a similar way. Yeah, exactly. So Abu Zubaydah is a case that involves a Guantanamo detainee who is seeking to subpoena two former CIA contractors in connection with a separate investigation in Poland over the CIA's conduct or alleged conduct uh, in Poland after 9-11, about 20 years ago. And so Abu Zubaydah was held at a black site and claims that it was in Poland and so wants information about his detention and treatment at the site. And so the government wants to block that subpoena, and it's arguing that divulging that information would endanger national security. And so the government appealed to the state secrets privilege in making that argument. And so when the case came before the Supreme Court last month, uh, the question was whether the Ninth Circuit was wrong to reject that claim of state secrets, the state secrets privilege. 
based on the government's assessment of potential harms um, and if discovery could proceed in that case. So I, I want to take a crack at your question about why these cases now, Alan, because I think there is an answer for that. And that's that the lower courts ruled against the government in both these cases. We've seen state secrets be invoked in like a number of lower court proceedings and in circuit court provisions a lot since 9-11, occasionally before then, um, not rarely rise to Supreme Court level. And usually that's because they don't grant cert because usually the government wins at the lower court level. And these are two cases where they haven't. I think that's actually something that the government needs to think carefully about to say, okay, well, we're beginning to face this scrutiny in the lower courts. Now, in both these cases, it happens to be the Ninth Circuit, right? Which the Ninth Circuit has a tradition of kind of being the somewhat left of a lot of the other circuit courts on a variety of issues, particularly where civil liberties are involved. This often intersects with civil liberties questions, so might be a reflection of that general trend. Although it's also a new generation on the Ninth Circuit, so I don't know if that quite holds the way it has Break it up. for a long time. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, part of the reason people call for that. But it's the fact that you, I think a big reason why the court took this up is probably because they don't want to see the government lose this sort of edge. But it's interesting that you saw in both cases, like a number of Supreme Court justices, both not want to rule against the government, but also want to push back a little bit and say, maybe there's some other way to like protect the secret while letting things happen. So, uh, you know, Gorsuch and a couple other justices, I think it was Sotomayor as well, jumped on this idea that saying that on the Zubeda case, he should be able to testify to his own treatment. Um, something the government subsequently agreed to, even though it was pretty clear that's not actually what Zubeda's counsel was trying to get. They were trying to get at information that filled a gap in another evidentiary record from these two witnesses they wanted to interview, right? But that was put forward by the court as like some sort of compromise position to let this go forward. And it's kind of interesting because I do think that lays in the possibility that the scrutiny is increasing by the courts, at least in cases where state secrets is being used very broadly. A lot of government policy, executive branch policy, is supposed to prevent that from happening, but it's it's a difficult thing to see how effectively it's enacting because it all happens behind government doors. And so if the courts are really, really willing to scrutinize this and say, okay, well, at least before we do away with all these sorts of cases, we need to have more confidence that the breadth of the secret involved requires not proceeding with this litigation, you're going to see this degree of scrutiny. So even if the government wins in both these cases, I think they may be a little concerned to say like, well, there's a little more willingness to push back against maybe some of these assertions. And it's worth noting, like neither of these assertions are actually like that broad. Like in the Fazaga case, some of the claims were allowed to proceed. Uh, the government actually, the district court actually expanded the scope of the state secrets claim the government was making unilaterally. The Ninth Circuit knocked that back at the government's request, allowing some of the claims to go forward, but not others that the plaintiffs were bringing. In the Zubeda case, you know, it's against, again, around this like kind of central fact of geographic location about that appears to relate to certain intelligence commitments the United States made to Poland way back in the day. It is a, a complicated issue, but it's like a fairly narrow one. So yeah, it, I think this really tees up the fact that people are willing to question state secrets maybe a little bit more than they have been in the past, even though that I doubt the outcome in either of these cases is going to be a significant change in state secrets as it stands, um, because there, in both cases, there are other avenues by which the court can can kind of do away with the matter. One thing I will say on the Zubaida oral argument, which isn't directly related to state secrets, but maybe gets to the question of how involved the court sort of wants to be. There was definitely a little bit of, you know, the court kind of seeming a bit like an absentee landlord that had been away for a while and sort of poked its head back in and said, oh, my God, this place is a mess. Why haven't you fixed anything? I mean, there's a, a truly, truly bizarre exchange with Justice Breyer, for whom there may be a bit of a defense, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute, where he asked Zubaida's counsel whether they had filed a habeas petition. In Breyer's defense, he may have been saying, you know, did you file a habeas petition after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan since that, you know, changes the legal reasoning for Zubaida's detention, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but so... I'm just looking at the transcript here of the oral argument. Zubaida's counsel responds, there has been a habeas proceeding pending in D.C. for the last 14 years. And then Justice Breyer says, don't they decide it? And the counsel says, I'm sorry. And Breyer says, I mean, you just let it sit there? Like, what the hell is that? Maybe he's setting himself up to, you know, write another concurrence or or dissent along the way that I think he did last term or a few terms ago, advocating for Guantanamo's closure on these grounds. But it really came off just as like the justice is just kind of having decided Boumediene and kind of waltzed off and then poked their head back in and realized that everything was a mess. It was very, very strange. Well, I'll say I think one of the 
interesting cases that issues that could get it reached here. But again, I think the court's going to end up avoiding it. But that's going to be something we're going to see if if I'm right that there is increasing skepticism of state secrets, something we might see come to a head in the future. And it's possible if the court rules a particular way, it could have big ramifications in Visaga. Is this question of the extent to which Congress, even if it wanted to through FISA, can supersede the state common law state secrets doctrine? State secrets doctrine is is not something that Congress ever enacted into law. It's derived from a series of privileges and kind of other sorts of existing doctrines from common law. It's very amorphous in its boundaries. A lot of it's defined by executive branch practice. That's that's a little hard to view into. Not much case law on it, but it's kind of persevered because courts say, well, we recognize there's some need for this sort of area. For the government to be able to assert some sort of secrecy protections. But, you know, I think there's a good reason to say, like, if Congress wanted to, it could step in here. That's usually the case with common law. Like, common law is supplanted by statute. And that's how we get most of our law today. Like, common law fills in the gaps behind the statute that Congress enacts. And we should know Congress has acted in this space before in the criminal context. Now, in that case, it was actually to help facilitate criminal prosecutions while also protecting government secrets through the Classified Information Procedures Act. But nonetheless, it's something that Congress has legislated comprehensive frameworks on before. And you could think of a lot more nuanced ways to approach these questions that would be perhaps better balance the interests of the government and the interests of private litigants. That would frankly look potentially a lot like the FISA procedures, which are themselves only limited to electronic surveillance cases, where you would say maybe there is ex parte and camera review. That's something that even judges can do in applying state secrets now, but they usually don't for whatever reason. But they could, in theory, look at this evidence and say, uh, I don't know if I buy this assertion of executive privilege or not. You know, I think the government's going to be really resistant to giving anything that's not highly, highly deferential to them. Um, but if Congress wants to step in, I suspect they could. But there is the risk here that there's another theory that control over classified information is so inherently executive that it might be beyond the authority of Congress to even legislate, or at least some core of that is. I suspect that's a really broad assertion. It's based on really broad readings of uh, Department of Navy v. Egan and some of these other cases that have hung around the space for a while. But I suspect it's not going to get there. But that's possible that some way the court could end up moving. I know some people on the le- on the kind of progressive advocacy side are worried. That's why the court took up this case. I personally would be surprised if they get there. There's lots of other ways to get rid of this matter. But that's the most interesting constitutional nub that comes out of this with ramifications for state secrets doctrine moving forward, I think. So we actually have a nice segue to our next topic, which is the testimony in a military commission's sentencing hearing of Majid Khan and other Guantanamo detainee. And it's related to our state secrets conversation because previously the government has blocked other detainees from testifying about their treatment at CIA black sites after 9-11 under the state secrets privilege. But Khan was allowed to testify here. And I think it's it's striking for a number of reasons. So Khan was allowed to talk about his, what I think we can fairly call torture by the CIA at length. And the military jury sentenced him to 26 years, which was one year over the minimum sentence. It's worth noting that he'd the jury didn't know this because they'd been sequestered, but Khan had previously reached a deal with the government that cuts that sentence uh, into something substantially shorter. So he'll be released either in sometime between 2022 and 2025. But after hearing this testimony and after deciding how they wanted to sentence Khan, all members of the jury, but one sat down and wrote a clemency letter to the convening authority, who's actually the the entity who will make the decision under the military commission structure as to what sentence Khan should receive, essentially saying, we think that he deserves clemency because of how brutally he was treated. And there's some really great reporting in the New York Times by Carol Rosenberg, um, who's the goat of the Gitmo beat, about what made the jury decide to write this letter. I think we'll link the letter in the show notes. It's a really interesting and and moving read. But I think it raises the question, you know, does this testimony bring us any closer to reckoning with torture? Or are we in the same place as we always did? I mean, I think that the con testimony was incredibly important, but it kind of didn't make headlines just because there's so much going on on in the world? Have we kind of missed the deadline in a way? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of interesting things to say about this. I mean, with respect to the state secrets angle, I mean, I think one point that's worth making is that this is just another reminder that the question of state secrets is not a purely evidentiary question, by, by which I mean, it's not as if some evidence 
is state secrets and other evidence is not state secrets. It's that the government makes decisions. The executive branch decides whether or not, in its judgment, the cost of that of that evidence being disclosed is is worth it. And that is related to operational concerns, but it also is related to some political concerns. And so I, I think it's notable that this testimony is happening now during the Biden administration and not during the Trump administration, um, because these administrations obviously have somewhat different views on the you know, permissibility of, of, of torture and other tactics. As to your question about whether or not we're any step closer to kind of reckoning with torture, I, I think yes, insofar as every piece of evidence of torture and its brutality and ineffectiveness, right? Because you sort of have to put those two together to make the strongest case against it, at least if you're a kind of outcomes-oriented person. Every additional bit of information that comes out, you know, contributes to future administrations and future bureaucrats and, and government officials not wanting to repeat this. And so in, in that sense, it's important to get as much of this information out as possible. But if what you're looking for is a kind of big, grand social reckoning of the sort that we had, for example, you know, when the Abu Ghraib photos came out, and this was really leading the news for, you know, days and days and days, I think it's too late, right? It's been 20 years. I mean, it's not been 20 years since all of these events, right? But it's been 20 years since 9-11. It's been, you know, basically, you know, 10 years since this was on anyone's front page. It's a generation ago. So again, that doesn't mean that it's not important to talk about. But the moment for there to be a, a reckoning, I think, has passed. And it shows the problems that, that happen when, whether because of classification issues or just bureaucracy, it takes 20 years to ventilate issues. And I think in this, in this sense, from a, certainly from a societal perspective, um, this is an example of how justice you know, delayed is, is justice not done. You know, I think this case actually may have um, more significant ramifications for the military commission system than um, people have fully spun out yet. And this is a little speculative, but, it, but I think it's worth spinning out the consequences a little bit. Here, the, I think one of the big takeaways here is that the military jury found in this case with Majid Khan uh, that the evidence of torture was compelling enough to give close to the minimal sentence and then to recommend clemency on top of that, right? Um, this is somebody who admitted he was a member of Al-Qaeda, was uh, not as directly involved in a lot of attacks involving Americans. He was involved in an assassination attempt on former president of Pakistan, I think, Professor Musharraf, I believe. I have the details right about that. I could be wrong. A couple other, definitely was involved in a variety of activities that were very problematic. He openly admits this, has said, I regret that. I regret my decisions. But nonetheless, engaged in criminal conduct. And this is the sentencing range they end up on the far end, in large part because of this torture evidence. The other big case, really the always the big case the military commissions has been structured around is the prosecution of five defendants relating to the 9-11 attacks, for which they are pursuing the death penalty. I think this raises real questions as to whether you will ever get a military jury to give them the death penalty, given that so many of them were subjected to identically brutal treatment. It raises a serious doubt about that, at least. And that's really important because we know a few years ago when the Trump administration removed uh, Harvey Rishkoff from a position of who, when he was then the convening authority, a big reason it's believed that this was the case, it's been reported. I don't, I don't know if it's been officially confirmed. I don't believe it has, but I think it's reasonable inference is that it was because he was engaged in settlement negotiations with those five people that would result in them getting less than the death penalty for pleading guilty for different crimes. That would allow the military commissions to wind up and close their work. So Rishkoff was removed because of that. Trump administration was very opposed to that idea. No negotiations have gone forward. Who knows if the Biden administration has renewed those or not. I do think, though, this is a, you know, a talking point a big one for that case to say, look, we're not going to be able to get the death penalty against these people anyway. So maybe these settlement negotiations, particularly if they allow us to finally begin to wind down the military commission's work and come to some sort of resolution for this process that right now doesn't have any endpoint in sight, may be worth picking back up and thinking again. Because again, you know, seven senior military service personnel out of eight um, signed on to the statement. That's exceptional and remarkable. And it shows the, you know, human impact of these sorts of treatment and the extent to which juries don't want to be a part of it. And that is a big problem for people seeking maximum sentences in the military commission system moving forward, I think. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point about the 
the sort of relevance of this testimony and of the letter. Uh, I think I, Quinta, going back to your question, I think I fell sort of in the same place as Alan, where with the sort of legacy of torture, where I think it's sort of impactful. And, you know, there's a lot of reporting about torture and it's been sort of widely established, but I think having a detainee describe it, and, and in this case for the first time um, that a detainee is described his treatment at a black site and then having the military officers weigh in felt really powerful and sort of damning. But I'm not sure, as Alan said, I'm not sure it changes much. But but I think the military commissions, if anything, would be the place where this, I think, has like a material impact. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, one one question just got to go back to your point on the 9-11 case is this is dragged on for so long that there's there's really a kind of a waiting for Godot element in how this is going to get resolved. But at some point, the rubber is going to have to hit the road in terms of is this going to trial? Is there going to be a renewed effort on the part of the United States to negotiate with the defendants and I do kind of wonder whether whatever direction that goes the kind of the moment of decision there might be a wider moment of reflection um, if not for the general public then at least for the United States government on the other hand I have no idea when that would happen I mean it could be 10 or 20 years from now right at a certain point the clock is ticking just because the defendants are getting older, but it just doesn't seem like there's any resolution in any direction at this point. I don't know if you think otherwise. No, I mean, I think that's that's part of the compelling case for people pursuing settlements, why the Obama administration is interested in doing it, why the Biden administration may, may be or may in the future begin exploring it again. You know, we're approaching the point where the military commissions are actually making end of life planning for their detainees. Like they're buying medical equipment and building facilities to have geriatric detainees there because that's realistically the direction we're moving. And remember that we are only prosecuting less than a dozen, I think, detainees actively right now. I think there's about 35, uh, I think is the current total uh, still in detention. I think it's 39. 39, 39. Thank you. Uh, 39 uh, numbers uh, straight from the source. You know, there's a long road ahead for getting through these. And all these trials are going to have massive, massive appeals processes, post-trial issues. A lot of evidentiary rulings are like not subject to appeal and review until actually you reach the end of the trial, which is still months and years away. You know, there's no end in sight for any of this. And frankly, a lot of like uh, victims advocates have reached the same conclusion and said, we want to see an end to this process. We'd rather see this wound up. Not all of them feel this way. It's worth noting, but we'd rather see this wound up um, and it's come out, you know, in support of efforts of finding an alternative solution. And at this point, that that might be it. On, on the torture point, I also think it's, it's worth reflecting, like, I think this kind of shows that our approach to, to handling accountability around torture was not a good one, although I don't know what the better one would have been. You know, the Obama administration's approach was basically, we have a political process, we have a new administration, a new day is upon us, we're not going to revisit and go back to these old policies. They did set up legal barriers to make it harder to do a lot of them, although the Bush administration had already kind of done that and Congress had already begun to do that in the late Bush administration. But there wasn't an effort to look 
retrospectively, substantively. We saw the Senate step in and do that. Um, we've seen various efforts come in and build the historical record. But we've also seen a lot of resistance around the military commissions trials and other contexts around, including the Zubeda case we just talked about, about really coming out with more information about what the United States did for legal liability reasons, for some of the people involved, for reputational reasons, for the agencies involved, for a lot of reasons. And I'm not sure you can ever actually make up for that in this context. Like if nothing else, it shows that this this information, this experience when relayed by these people has a real human impact, even though all these facts were already known. Like nothing Mujid Khan said really was new information, but the emotional impact still was substantial on these jurors, it seems like. So, you know, that that's all still there. And, you know, obviously I think there's just a lot more reckoning that needs to happen with this past somehow. But so much time has passed and we're dealing with all these legal remnants that have caused so much wrangling in the ensuing years. I'm not sure what the right way forward is at this point. Yeah. I mean, going to Alan's point about the usefulness of sort of establishing a public record like Khan's testimony is sort of blocking future administrations from going down that same very ugly path. It does strike me that, um, as you're kind of saying, Scott, you know, I think arguably Trump's posture toward Guantanamo and toward torture, even if it was never implemented, you know, putting all the bad dudes in Guantanamo or whatever it is he said, is a pretty good case for, you know, the importance of looking back and reckoning with what happened. Because if you don't, then you can end up with someone as the commander in chief who says that it's torture is a great idea and Guantanamo should just be kept open forever. The only thing I'll add is this question about settlement and whether or not that is on the horizon. So I totally agree with Scott that that is almost certainly the right way forward, both because if you're going to try the the 9-11 defendants, you're going to have to deal with their torture and that, that's not going to be good for anyone. The military commissions also, I think it's safe to say, has been a failure. You know, anything that takes 20 years is probably not 20 plus years, frankly, um, is probably not the way we want to do justice. And, and so, you know, settling this, you know, f- closing this out, these people will spend the rest of their lives in prison. It's pretty obvious what they all did. That strikes me as pretty obviously the right answer. I do though wonder if the politics of that are possible. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what discussions are happening inside the Biden White House. You know, I, I'm sure there are plenty of Republicans who also think that Torture is terrible and this needs to settle and move on, but there are probably just enough Republicans who either um, out of bad faith or because they really believe that Guantanamo is a great thing and we should, you know, keep torturing people as necessary and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, will make a lot of political hay out of this. The problem then, of course, is you're trading off between kind of a short-term political cost and the longer-term festering of this. And say what you will about Biden, he does seem pretty committed to being the president that takes responsibility for and ending things. So you may like his decisions in Afghanistan or not, but he wanted to end this war and not pass it on to a successor. And he did that, uh, or at least he, he tried to do that more than any other president has. And so I imagine he may want to do that with respect to the military commissions, with respect to Guantanamo. And and the question is, um, you know, if settlement really is the fastest way to get there, is he willing to take the, the political cost? And we'll just have to see. Well, going from one set of questionable prosecutorial decisions to another, let's talk about the January 6th prosecutions. This past week, we heard a judge before a D.C. district court throw a little shade on the Justice Department's strategy for prosecuting at least some of the participants in the January 6th insurrection, calling the Justice Department's decision to pursue relatively minor charges against these individuals, even as they use rhetoric describing insurrection as an unprecedented criminal act of massive scale, as schizophrenic, baffling, and muddled, uh, three of the terms she decided to throw out there. Although notably, she then proceeded to give some of these people actually lower sentences than requested by the government in some of these cases. So one can make some arguments about some of her own assessments of uh, of, uh, the exact situation here. But it's raised a lot of interesting questions about what approach the Justice Department is taking in pursuing these prosecutions. Our, our lawfare colleague, Roger Parlov, had a great piece summarizing what we know so far in lawfare last week. And we wanted to use this as a launching point to discuss a little bit. What do we know about this strategy and to what extent does it seem to make sense thus far? Alan, you are the only former prosecutor among us. Why don't we turn to you first? 
So I, I should not overstate my prosecutorial credentials, though. I, I have seen the inside of a courtroom um, a few times. You know, I, the, the first thing I want to say about the judge's comments is there's no contradiction, to be clear, between calling this what it was, which is a unprecedented attack on American democracy of the sort that people will be talking about hundreds of years from now, and recommending relatively short sentences for, in particular, those defendants that committed relatively minor crimes, right? The, the point here is not to get the maximum sentences that is possible under the law, right? The point is to make sure that those who were most responsible and who did the worst acts are appropriately punished and are appropriately deterred. But most importantly, what this is really about is creating a record for the public and expressing on behalf of the government that this event was very bad and should never happen again. That is the important part, to be clear here, right? Not taking every single person who may have committed a crime, right? And, and to be clear, I have written you know, very harshly about all this stuff in the past. Not take every person that may have committed a crime and throw them in jail for the statutory maximum. So you know, I, I don't think actually there is any contradiction in the government's rhetoric, which is appropriately, I don't want to say extreme, but it appropriately captures the extreme nature of the event and some of these uh, recommendations. There's also just a case management issue, which needs to be, you know, needs to be faced squarely. Neither the Justice Department nor the federal courts are set up to do 400 defendant trials, right? That's not why they were created. Um, that's not the, the standard criminal prosecution. And so in a situation like this, where you have a very large number of defendants and a huge amount of evidence, either because the Capitol is one of the most surveilled places in the country, because a lot of these defendants themselves, you know, recorded their actions and posted them to social media or live streamed them, you know, just doing all of this correctly on a defendant by defendant basis takes an enormous amount of time. And so it makes sense for the government to try to clear the decks of a lot of these cases, in particular because there are speedy trial requirements, right? You can't just have defendants hang out for years and years because you sort of don't want to get to them and then move on to the more serious, more important cases. What I think the, the problem here, and it's just an unfortunate nature of the news cycle, is that the American public, like publics everywhere, and the American news media has relatively short attention spans. And naturally, the most focus is going to be at the very beginning. But the most important cases are going to take the longest time to resolve. So if you're only looking at this first tranche of cases as the first cases coming out of the January 6th prosecutions and looking at them for a kind of thematic sense of what the government strategy is going to be, you're going to get a very misleading sense. Um, you know, as, as unsatisfying as this is, the only thing to do here is be patient and recognize that this has to work its way through the system so that the government can get to the more serious defendants, bring them more serious charges. All of that makes sense. And yet I do think that there is something to the critiques being made. Or I guess I, I don't I don't think that you're wrong, but I, I see where they're coming from. And I do think that it's notable that, so as we said, there is a, a recent sentencing hearing in which a judge sort of got irate with the Justice Department for not hitting a defendant, you know, not really throwing the book at the defendant. That's not the only time that that's happened. I know, I think Tony Sneed at CNN, I want to say, has reported on a couple times that that has happened with, with other judges as well. So for what it's worth, it is a pattern that multiple judges have raised these concerns. I do think you're you're right about the fact that the sort of the bigger fish are going to take longer. And I definitely would recommend that everybody go and look at Roger's piece, which we'll link in the show notes. And he he does kind of sketch out how most of the cases where people are pleading out it's misdemeanors or if they've pleaded down, it's from a class A misdemeanor to a class B misdemeanor, not from a felony. Whereas, you know, in the case of the Oath Keepers, for example, and the Proud Boys, there are some pretty complicated conspiracy cases that it looks like are are still being investigated. That said, I mean, I wonder how much of this is two things. On the one hand, we have not seen culturally 
um, societally, politically, the kind of reckoning that I personally would have wanted to see from January 6th. I was just reading an article about how a number of Republican donors who pledged after January 6th not to give to members who had challenged the uh, certification of the electoral vote are now back to donating to them, you know, as if nothing had changed. And clearly the Republican Party has sort of embraced January 6th as a kind of lost cause narrative. So I do wonder if part of part of the frustration on the part of the public, if not from judges, is this sense that the criminal justice system is the only place where we're going to see that reckoning and sort of projecting hopes onto that. And so there's a frustration when that gratification doesn't come immediately. And that ties into the next point that I want to make, which is I wonder how much of this is a Mueller investigation PTSD, because <laughs> that that was the last time where people really put their hopes on criminal investigations as a way to hold Trump uh, and those around him accountable. And I would argue it didn't really pan out. And I think there's a lot of frustration around that. So I do wonder, you know, it's easy to say, you know, hold your horses. This is a long term thing. The conspiracy cases are going to take a long time to investigate and charge. On the other hand, I feel like many people maybe heard the same things around the Mueller investigation and that didn't end up being as dramatic as some members of the public maybe hoped. So maybe we're having a bit of a a sort of political hangover here. And just to say quickly, to be clear, I mean, I, I have my own, you know, Mueller frustration version of this, which is that if when this is all said and done, the government does not bring any seditious conspiracy charges, right? I will view that as a missed opportunity. Now, if that's because they really don't think they have the evidence for it, okay, that's one thing, though I doubt that that is frankly the case, given what we know. What's more likely is that the government's not going to want to take the risk of bringing these charges because they're politically quite explosive because they have the word sedition in them. Um, and they really express that this is not just conspiracy. It's not just crime. It's not just obstruction of whatever. It's like the thing that's right before treason, basically. Uh, if the government does not do that, I will think that that was a big mistake. But because the government also wants to win and prosecutors are, you know, despite what you might see on TV, deeply small C conservative, right, and and only want to bring cases kind of with overwhelming force that they can definitely win, will take their sweet time, which is appropriate. But but I think you are right, Quinta, you know, the, the public does deserve some legal political catharsis, but it's not going to get that with the first hundred defendants who who, you know, wandered in and maybe broke a window. And I mean, nor nor should it, arguably, right? Like, I, I do think if you are looking to the criminal justice system to deliver catharsis, that's how a lot of people have their lives ruined. So maybe that's not where we should be looking for it. And I think it, it's a reflection of our sort of political chaos that we are, or we or many people are looking for it in a place where perhaps they shouldn't be. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting, though, because the frustration there is sort of paralleled in the frustration with the congressional investigation and the efforts to for for Congress and the select committee in particular to investigate January 6th. And and so if people are moving their, you know, if the source of catharsis is like these subpoenas and these testimonies, that's also not sort of panning out in the way that I think a lot of people would, would like to see it. Yeah. You know, I'm one of these people who a lot of the move towards certain types of charges people want to bring in this context makes me instinctually nervous because they have these sorts of loaded connotations. Um, and it's not that I don't even believe they might be warranted in some of these cases, if you can make the evidence and, and whatnot. But, you know, I always think back to what was before January 6th, like the defining experience of, of the last year, other than COVID, I should say, uh, at least certainly for people in D.C. and most metropolitan cities in uh, the United States. And that was the Black Lives Matters protests and, you know, a lot of the uh, social unrest that built around that. And you think about the rhetoric that some people in the Trump administration approached to people involved with those protests or people involved with what they call Antifa and it makes me really nervous when we start looking at these statutory provisions, most of which date, I believe, from the 19th century, uh, a seditious conspiracy does, I think. I mean, they're all, they're all Civil War statutes. They're all Reconstruction era statutes. They both also have this uh, you know, provision that, that essentially invalidates people from holding office. That's something that's like expressly authorized under by the 14th Amendment, Section 
three or section five, I can't remember, section five, I think, you know, that's allowed there, but something that's constitutional boundaries haven't really been tested. In theory, it's something that like Congress might be able to do much more broadly, um, has at least done in one case internally and in kicking out its own members regarding some anarchists in like the 1920s, if I recall correctly, was is the case I'm thinking of. But it's, it's a practice that makes me really nervous to start opening the door in these moments where a segment of our political elite that's not in power right now, but may well be back in power in the near future, levels a lot of the same accusations in ways that I think are far less factually founded. Um, that doesn't necessarily stop them against other activity that I think is much closer to legitimate speech activity. And the question is, well, I'd rather see people focus much more on concrete, violent slash illegal acts breaking and entering, trespassing, destruction of property, because those don't have that sort of political and social valence. And they also just raise more, much more practically a much more limited range of constitutional questions and other issues. Some of the vagueness concerns have come up about some of these statutes, particularly the some other statutes enacted more recently um, that have been charged against people, like show that, you know, some of these just there there may be political dividends there that aren't worth running. And I think it must be worse if you want to see these people held accountable. I think it might be worse to see them charged, prosecuted, and then have a court say, no, actually, the government was prosecuted in a way that's unconstitutional. I think I'd rather see the federal government take a, an approach that they know is constitutionally sound and will achieve results that are sustainable for political reasons. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of anxiety around this, but a lot of mixed feelings, too, because I, I, I certainly sympathize and see arguments on the other side as well. Yeah, Scott, I, I think your anxieties are, are totally reasonable, and I have a lot of them my, myself. I mean, I'm not sure the seditious conspiracy issue is around. I'm not sure that the danger is constitutional per se, because, again, you know, these cases are not about speech, right? No one thinks that breaking a window in the Capitol and assaulting police officers and you know, th that's not speech, right? So if the concern is, I don't want to use seditious conspiracy to punish peaceful protesters, I, I think we actually have other mechanisms in place to, to deal with that. But, but where I do think you're absolutely right is that, you know, the law as it's written is very broad. And, you know, once you get into the issue of violence, right, then seditious conspiracy does not distinguish between political movements. And if you can use seditious conspiracy against right-wing extremism, theoretically, you could use seditious conspiracy against, you know, Black Lives Matter protest, right? And I think we are appropriately hesitant about calling something, even if it is violent and illegal, right, and might otherwise be criminal, calling something that is in the service of kind of the long, difficult march of racial justice in the United States, sedition. Because again, what we're talking about here is is the expressive effects of calling something. Now, I, I think the Antifa example is actually different, right? I'm kind of, I, I think that there are some versions of the Antifa um, situation that are actually much more akin to the, to the sort of kind of nihilistic, anarchic destructiveness of the far right. And I actually have no problem calling some of that seditious conspiracy. But but like, I think your core is like, you know, if, if there's a Black Lives Matter protest and some of it gets violent and burns some police cars, right? Like that may be bad. We may want to punish that. But like, do we want to call that sedition? I think that's a very fair point. But I do think that you can only submerge this debate for so long. And if as a country, we're going to go through a period of five or 10 years of political instability, because for a variety of interesting structural and demographic changes, you know, you're about to have a lot more of a chaotic political system, we are going to kind of have to have it out. And Although I totally get the dangers that you're talking about, I would rather us have a conversation about what we as a society are willing to call sedition. And if someone wants to say, well, if you're going to call far right extremism sedition, I want to call Black Lives Matter protest sedition. I want to have that debate so I can say, well, I, I think it's different or here's what I think. And I think it's important to have that debate. Well, first off, I just want to say, Alan, I'm really disappointed in you for canceling Antifa, and I think we should be more open-minded um, in in all seriousness. I mean, I think that the, this conversation, which, I, Scott, I am also extremely sympathetic to the arguments that you make, is just, to me, just kind of underlines the underlying political dysfunction, which is that we are currently in a political environment where a not insignificant section of the population and of our sort of elite political class thinks that protesting for racial justice is equivalent, if not worse than engaging in a violent riot in the Capitol and threatening the lives of members of Congress, right? Like, it should be obvious that those are different and that one of them is like way worse than the other. And yet it is not. And so 
I am also of two minds about this because on the one hand, I feel along with Alan, you know, this is an opportunity for the criminal justice system, for the Justice Department, for Article Three judges to come down and say, we will define for you what the truth is and what really is beyond the pale. On the other hand, we also have to acknowledge that there are judges, perhaps, who really would think that that distinction is not so clear cut. And so I don't know. I mean, I feel like I want to be realistic about the ways that this could go wrong. But at the same time, at a certain point, bowing totally to that realism feels a little bit like giving up on the fight. I I hear you on that, Quinta. And I sympathize on one point, but I think we need to fight the instinct that says, you know, unless we use these broadly worded 19th century statutes that happen to have the word insurrection and sedition in them, um, that somehow we're letting these people off scot-free. You know, I, I think we can legitimately, and that's an overstating what you're saying. I know that's what you're saying necessarily. But I think the point here is, is, my point here at least, is that, you know, we can hold these people accountable. We have to. Absolutely. There should be no gray area about that. These people violate the law in a violent way with the intent of obstructing like the major function of government, the peaceful transition of power. Uh, and they need to be held up to the accountable to the full extent of the law. But I don't think that means that you necessarily have to resort to these particular statutes when there are other ones available. Now, there are maybe cases where there aren't other ones available. And that's another problem to say like, okay, well, this is a weird fact pattern that doesn't fit squarely into some of our statutory criminal regimes at the federal level. And maybe we need to start thinking about how we go about this if we need some sort of new criminal provision for domestic terrorism. I'm skeptical of that. That's a whole other topic for another episode. But you know, maybe there's an argument there around some of this. But this is like just straight up violent activities, trespassing, assault, all sorts of things and conspiracy to commit those things. You know, there are other avenues for doing it in, by the way, like a territory where the federal government has a much better claim because there's nexuses to federal institutions everywhere. So you have a federalism nexus and lots of statutes that cover that sort of stuff. So I'm not desperate to see these things trotted out unless there's a real legal argument and a sound case and frankly, like limiting principles so that people know they're not setting a precedent that's going to make them be used in aggressive and dangerous ways in the future. If we were in a moment where there was more consensus that this was wrong politically, I might be willing to take more risk. But you know, the simple truth is that the narrative around the set of acts is, is much more split 50-50 than ideally I would like it to be or than I think it should be. And realistically, I just don't know if there's a can of worms I, I want to see opened up moving forward in that, in that political environment. Well, on that very cheery note, Uh, We are just about out of time. But of course, here at Rational Security, we do not close up without leaving you with some object lessons to take with you on your merry way. Quinta, why don't we start with you? My object lesson is Neopets, which I have no idea how many of our listeners have heard of this, but it was a Flash-based, so really retro, online game that I played obsessively in the early aughts you have little i don't even think they're animated i was they're just you know cartoons of small mythical creatures that you can buy and you can dress them up in different colors and you have to feed them otherwise they get sad and you can take them on adventures in the virtual world and i was obsessed with neopets um i made i hand coded HTML-based websites for all of my Neopets. And occasionally I think about them and wonder if they're all starving to death and are mad at me. Uh, And I had an opportunity to think about this again recently because the New York Times, the paper of record, ran a story about people who never stopped playing Neopets, people who returned to Neopets during the pandemic and, you know, found that uh, things had changed a little bit. Flash, for one thing, no longer supported um, by many browsers. But apparently there is a still, you know, a whole community of, it seems like mostly women in their late 20s and early 30s. So a demographic of which I am proudly a member who are just still into Neopets and have just kind of kept on trucking as the world has moved on. 
Um, so I was totally charmed by this New York Times story. It reminded me of my childhood. I briefly had fantasies of logging into my old Neopets profile and seeing, you know, what things look like, uh, but realized I have not only forgotten my password, I have no idea which email I used as, you know, a 12 year old, what insane email I came up with, you know, at hotmail.com. So my, my Neopets will be lost to history, but all of you should know. My HTML pages were really amazing. Uh, I took source code from like all kinds of different websites and plopped it in so I could make it look pretty. It was a thing of beauty. And I'm very sad that it is lost to the mists of time. So the difference between Quinta, who is a, a young millennial, and and me, who's kind of a medium old millennial, is that Quinta prefers her animals digital, whereas I prefer my animals real, albeit... <laughs> albeit with digital pictures. So my object lesson is several Twitter accounts that I follow, um, and we will list them in the show notes, that are just pictures of cute animals. And I will say, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, you know that Twitter is a horrible cesspool that is destroying civilization. One of the best ways of improving your Twitter experience, beyond just using the block and mute buttons liberally, is to subscribe to a couple of feel-good Twitter accounts and for me, there are three in particular that I really like. Uh, one is an account that posts pictures and rates dogs. Don't worry. The ratings are out of 10 and the dogs are all rated 11 through 14. So it's, it's very feel good. Um, another is an uh, account that posts cats, pictures of cats in places they shouldn't be, which is always delightful. Uh, and the third just posts pictures of otters. And I got to say, the otter might be the cutest animal out there. And so if you, like me, spend too much time on Twitter and find that it's a depressing depressing abyss, I highly recommend following a couple of cute animal Twitter accounts, and it will make your life a lot better. Are you familiar with the Twitter account, uh, Giant Military Cats? Ooh, I do like that one. Yes, that, yes. One's, that one's very good as well. Yes, yeah, so kind of a subset of cats where they should not be genre. Yes. yes so, for yes. example, I'm I'm looking at one now that has a, a picture, a photograph of Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko on in some sort of fancy building with a giant cat behind him. It's delightful. He's kind of like the Garfield of like European dictators. I feel like <laughs> a little bit like grumpy about Mondays, like lasagna. I can see that. Alan, what you're neglecting is by far the best source of joy on Twitter uh, that is animal related, which is not an account, but a hashtag. And that is a has little hashtag I call it hashtag interspecies friends, where if you click on this hashtag, it is an amazing set of photos that's been going for like a while now, I'm pretty sure, um, where you will find where picture people have put up pictures and continue to put up pictures of animals of different species just hanging out with each other. B and BFFs just chilling, and it's phenomenal. I once tried to find there was a cat and opossum that used to be friends in my old neighborhood and would hang around, and I spent an evening trying to chase them and take a picture of them to put on Twitter for this very purpose. I failed sadly, um, but there's like nothing more heartwarming when you see like two animals that should be trying to eat each other just like cuddle up and like become buddies, uh, and it makes me feel very warm. So I, I am currently looking at a cat nuzzling with a sheep, and you are correct that that is amazing. The only problem with this it's though, amazing. with interspecies friends, is you can't follow it. So I can't just like. What I want to have is a bunch of people yelling at each other about politics, but then every 37th tweet, I see like a, a duck nuzzling with a wolf. And well, I, you can make I a can't tweet do that with a hashtag, column. unfortunately. So you can just scroll scroll over to get your, you know, your interspecies friends fix. Done. I think before you respond to any sort of politically motivated thread on Twitter or post something, you actually have to look at one of those photos for 10 seconds. There's a little countdown clock and then you can post. And I think the whole Twitter is going to be just a way more pleasant environment. We know people at Twitter. Come on, Twitter people. Get on this. This seems like an obvious, obvious plus for the app. Well, I am going to share something else that makes me happy that I got in the mail the other day. Um, and that is the fact that I am a member of and have been for some time now, a very elite society. I think I've mentioned it on here before, maybe. I don't believe I've made an object lesson before, but I am a member of an elite bean society called the Rancho Gordo Bean Club. And have been, I realized, for like six or seven years now, for like a real long time. And for you all who don't know, this is an amazing farm in the Bay Area where this guy, uh, Steve Sando, grows all these amazing varietals of beans and then packages them up. And if you join this club, which has had a waiting list that's like months long for a long time now, evidently, which I did not fully realize, you get quarterly just like a package of like five pounds of random delicious types of beans that are wild. 
will like knock your socks off. Even if you're not vegetarian, it'll just make your whole framework for how beans work different. It's just phenomenal. And I look forward to it every week. And it comes with like a great newsletter. I got a calendar with pictures of like beans and stuff on it. It's great. There's often like herbs mixed in or some other side ingredients. I think I got some right wild rice. So is there a different bean on the calendar like each month? It's actually like pictures. They're really interesting. It's like pictures from he has he spends a lot of time in Mexico. And so it's pictures that are done in a style of like Mexican advertisements from the 50s and 60s. Uh, so it's okay, kind of that neat. is cool. Um, that's kind of a recurring theme. It's actually really cool. He's got like a great sense of style too. Um, they also have a Facebook group that's evidently very culty um, that I signed on to the Facebook for the first time in six months to join uh, the other day um, just to see what it's all about when you join this elite bean cult do they make you drink be like bean water kool-aid yeah pot liquor exactly you've got to like just slurp it up it's so good that's the one thing i disagree with them on actually is because they say you should be cooking your beans separately disagree your beans should be in there with the other ingredients you get the pot liquor because that's like the best part of it that's like a southern thing i don't know if other people call it that's what we always call it was like pot liquor regardless it's phenomenal and i will say i used it to make my favorite dish of winter, my favorite Tuscan peasants do, pasta fajol, not like fancy pasta fajol, but like chunky Tuscan style pasta fajol the other day. That's my favorite dish. Um, so I'll put a link to uh, the recipe along with the link to the Rancho Gordo Bean Club there, which is actually not from the Bean Club. It's a different recipe, but still really good. And try it with some borlati or cranberry beans, which are some of their finer beans that they ship out. With that very long bean divergence, uh, Rohini, let me turn to you. Thank you. So my object lesson is an important anniversary that we collectively marked this weekend, whether you remembered it or not, uh, which is the one-year anniversary of the Four Seasons Total Landscaping infamous press conference that came at the end of the Trump presidency. And if your experience was anything like mine, that was this like crazy, funny thing that happened last year that I remember talking about for a week, and then it sort of got overtaken by other matters. But if you want a moment of levity in your day, it's worth, I think, taking a trip down memory lane to remember what was like the funniest political moment to ever have happened. It's also the subject of a new documentary, I found out, uh, which I admit I have not watched, but nevertheless, an anniversary worth marking. What is the documentary called? Yeah, We've had a lot of conversations about how this happened and really, really want to see what people have uncovered. <laughs> this is on our show. I think Quinta and I had a conversation. We put this on our list of like five questions we really want to Yes. Answered. I bought a t-shirt. For, it's for, it's, it has <laughs> right. gritty on it and it says uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping, not the Four Seasons Philadelphia. It's a great t-shirt. The documentary is called Four Seasons Total Documentary. <laughs> no, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I hate it, but I love yeah. it. Okay, you guys got me. You know what? Just, just accept the joy of Four Seasons Total Landscaping into All your right. life. Exactly. All right. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will also find liner notes for this episode, links to the articles and object lessons we discussed, and other goodies. You can purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. Our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are, as always, edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guests, Rahini Karup, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.